Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello and welcome to the Aberdeen Emerging Markets Equity Podcast. I'm Nick Robinson from the Emerging Market Equity Team. In this podcast series, we explore the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. From key individuals to evolving trends, we seek to answer the five W's, the who, what, where, when, and why, that are shaping investment opportunities in the region. In today's episode, Matt Williams is back on the podcast to revisit a topic we discussed nearly two years ago, income investing in emerging markets. Matt has now been with the firm for over 20 years, and he's a senior investment director based in London. Amongst his responsibilities on the team, he's been running the income funds since inception, and they've just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. So he's very well placed to give us his insights on all things emerging market income. Matt, thanks for coming back on. Congratulations on the 10-year anniversary. Oh, thanks, Nick. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Great. Well, let's um, perhaps start with a question on historical context. If we uh, cast our minds back a couple of years to when you were last on the podcast, we were in quite a different environment back then. Interest rates were very low. I think emerging markets perhaps were starting to raise rates at that stage, but certainly in more developed markets, they were a fairly distant prospect. There wasn't much inflation around. And uh, many countries were dealing with various COVID waves as new variants were coming. I seem to remember lots of companies also hoarding cash and reluctant to pay out income. So, you know, if we if we compare today with where we were back then, how has the environment changed for income investing? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Well, I think the most important point here is that we've now got um, a level playing field for companies and and a much more stable environment in the sense that um, now we don't have any more lockdowns. So that means, particularly for Main Street, that um, they can um, deal with their customers and, you know, manufacturing facilities um, and um, and end operations are open for business. So, so that's really the, um, the most important difference. It means that companies can uh, plan for the future and have more visibility around where their income stream is going to come in future. And in turn, that enables them to uh, to think about distributing some of that income in the form of a, a dividend payment. Great. And at the end of 2021, we saw quite a significant change in, in the market regime. You know, Up until that point, with low interest rates, investors were very much bidding up the prices of growth stocks. But as inflation started to come in, you know, we saw this big shift or, or rotation more towards uh, value stocks. I mean, given that a lot of income stocks also tend to be value stocks, how did that change the environment? Yeah, so as you say, the the context is that we saw a higher rate of inflation and we saw different drivers of growth and i think that's worth exploring because it caused a significant rotation in the market and and it created a lot of opportunity for income investing Um, and there are several reasons why i think those changes are largely structural and that's very good news for our income approach 
as we look forward. And essentially, there's no rocket science to this. We're seeing more pricing and more volume growth. And that, of course, is the, the lifeblood of, of corporate income generation. So let's explore that. Um, and I, to do that, I think we need to go back to COVID and, and understand the, the effects. So firstly, we had a, a supply disruption, which created upward pressure on prices. Uh, most of the disruption that came from you know, factories halting and, and transportation bottlenecks have now washed through the system. Um, but when we speak to companies, we're still observing um, uh, an underinvestment in a number of important areas of the economy. So there are reasons to think that um, whilst we may see a, a, a different reason for supply restrictions, that supply is going to remain um, an underlying pressure on, on prices going forward. And then we had um, the extra demand that came from stimulus that drove higher volumes and put upward pressure on prices as well. And for me, the interesting point here is that we saw a, a different transmission of stimulus into the economy. And that's because there was a different type of stimulus. So in the past, we've seen the, uh, the, the policy of choice to, to cut interest rates and for central banks to supply more liquidity into the market. And that has the effect of, of buoying credit-sensitive equities first. But from COVID, and because interest rates were, were at such historic low levels and there was already so much liquidity in the market, we had to find a new tool in the, in the toolbox. And that came in the form of um, more government involvement, firstly, in the form of go direct government transfers, and secondly, through the form of higher investment. And in my opinion, we're still very early in the use of government-directed investments. Uh, and that's why I think we're going to continue to see um, a, a scenario where we have more breadth of pricing and more volume growth for more companies across emerging markets going forward. Now, the consequence of higher prices is that it's appropriate for, for central banks to, to mop up excess um, inflation by raising interest rates. And, um, and that has the, the discounting effect of reducing the worth of future growth. And hence, as you say, there was a, a shift from from growth stocks to value stocks. And I think that, um, again, is, uh, is going to continue because I, I, I don't see um, an environment, unless we see a major overshoot on interest rates, I think higher interest rates are, um, uh, are the other side of the coin, which is higher inflation that comes from more government investment.
Yeah, I certainly feel like the market narrative has changed somewhat in the last few months from an expectation that inflation was going to fall back down to 2% or so relatively quickly to to one where today it feels like rates are likely to remain higher for longer and inflation a bit higher for longer which, as you're saying, should should benefit the value stocks or the income-generating companies where those cash flows are more near-dated. If we bring it back to emerging markets more broadly, you know, I suppose when you think about emerging markets or when investors think about EM, it's you know, quite often you don't, don't really associate EM companies with being big dividend payers. And I suppose there's a perception that emerging markets are relatively high growth and growth companies tend to reinvest more in the business rather than paying out dividends. Do you think that's a, a fair reflection in emerging markets? And how do you think about income investing in the context of emerging markets? Well, first thing to say is no. I think it's much more nuanced than that. And it may help to, to lay out how we think about the income opportunity. So if you visualize the stages of a company life cycle from when they start life to to when they end it and we break that down into to four quadrants in the first quadrant a company starts its life and they have to to fight to establish their customer base investments are are higher than the cash flows they they generate they're reliant on external funding almost entirely and if they're successful then they grow at a very rapid pace and it's in that quadrant we we actively look to avoid those types of businesses because we don't think it's appropriate to to ask a dividend payment of them Uh, in fact it could lead to financial stress now the thing i would say about that quadrant is if you look back empirically it's, it's a very risky segment of the market where about 90% of businesses fail to make the transition. Um, but those that do move into the second quadrant, and that's where they, they start to have a more reliable customer base and a more reliable revenue stream that enables them to, to generate internally um, internal levels of, of cash flow, and then they have the choice rather than the need um, in, as to whether they want to reinvest that cash flow into future growth and, and how much they want to invest into, into future growth. And it's at this point that we think it's appropriate for those companies to consider and to start mapping out their their dividend payments and and we think that's an important discipline for the executive team to to think about so no we don't see it as a as a signal of of going x growth in fact we we would say that there are too many examples of companies focusing on growth to the detriment of of the business overall if you expand too rapidly, you might reduce your pricing power or trigger a competitive response from, from competitors. 
you may weaken your financials and you set off a, a downward spiral. In most instances, successful growth companies are the ones that are investing within their means and using other softer ways to, to differentiate, such as building brands and quality of service. And, and we think the shareholders imposing a discipline of paying a dividend helps those companies to think about their budgeting and preserving capital to be able to, to pay a dividend and encourage them to think about alternative ways of differentiating. And then there's the third quadrant where companies are seeing less growth and it's more appropriate to pay more out to shareholders. And lastly, in the fourth quadrant, companies that are, have gone past maturity and are moving into a declining phase where they're not investing enough to sustain the existing business. Um, and we wouldn't look to invest in that fourth quadrant either um, because we think those companies again, by paying a dividend, are putting stress on the business overall. So our playing field is in the, the second quadrant and the third quadrant, and we see a lower risk from investing in those types of profitable growth companies, uh, but plenty of opportunity. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you think about the overall market and you know, in particular those second and, and third quadrants, how is the proportion of companies within emerging markets now entering those second and third quadrants? So I guess to get a perspective of you know, when you look back in time, how is the mix of total returns evolving between dividends and price appreciation? And has there been any trend there? Yeah, pretty consistently across all markets, if you go back over, for example, about a, a, a a 10-year period, then clipping that dividend coupon each year accumulates to, to make a meaningful part of the, the total returns. And actually, over that period in emerging markets, it represents a hefty, about a 50% portion of the total return of the share price over time. So it's pretty meaningful. And then the interesting part is if, if you break down the second component of, of that total return, the, the price return, it further breaks down into a valuation re-rating and then earnings growth. And we see that 90% plus of the, of the contribution from that segment comes from earnings growth. And that makes sense because... A valuation re-rating is really an anticipation of a higher future income stream. So either you get that income and the valuation then comes back down, or you don't get that income and the valuation comes back down regardless. But either way, the distribution of an income stream and also the the expectation of an earnings growth, which we proxy to be future income growth, drives the total return of share prices. That's the way we think about investing. 
of the decade or just over a decade that you've been running these income mandates, I mean, what have been some of the the pitfalls and the the things you've learned in terms of how to avoid making mistakes? Yes, if we kind of keep our focus on the company life cycle and those four quadrants, I'd say the the key pitfall is is misdiagnosing where a company is. So you want to invest in companies that are in that second or the third quadrant. Um, but the, you know sometimes there are mistakes where they're really not in that category. And I, I think, for example, investors have have made that mistake with um, recently with a number of digi tech companies where they've been around for a long time. So there's a perception that there's a maturity and an establishment to the to the revenue stream um, of the business. But um, when you take away um, price incentives, I think there's been a discovery that a number of customers are not quite as sticky as was previously thought. And and as a consequence, um, they're perhaps you know, a number of companies are still quite early within their overall development and and firmly in that first quadrant. But we tend to use our income analysis to try and help um, avoid some of those categorization pitfalls. So in much the same way as a, a doctor would take a blood sample and analyze that to understand what's happening in the the key organs of the body, we would look at the income being generated in companies to to kind of shine a spotlight on the on the various financial statements and to build up a a richer interpretation of of what's going on. Right. And what about um ESG issues related to running an income mandate in that you know historically a lot of the high dividend payers tend to or quite a lot of them tend to be in sectors where there's a bit more ESG risk be it materials companies or or utilities companies you know is is that an issue that you have to keep front of mind we think about environmental social and and governance issues as inputs into our research process as we try to understand the the likely future income stream of the business and the risks and the opportunities associated with that. So if we take an example of carbon emissions, there is a, a clear cost that we're identifying to the natural world from emitting excess pollutants into the atmosphere. And, and we need to find the you know an appropriate incentive price for companies to be able to deal with those costs in a constructive way so we think a lot about those costs and the the ability of of companies to to manage for for risks such as that but taking that example and perhaps put a different way I tend to think most companies want to do the right thing by all of their stakeholders. The, the issue is invariably whether 
the end customer is willing to pay for those extra costs and to and to encourage the associated investments and i think we're going through that process of discovery today and you know it's really fascinating to to analyze and 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 work your way through that but i perhaps wouldn't describe those companies as as an evil i think it's an outcome of not having the right pricing for their products and services not having the right pricing in in terms of what could you expand on that a little bit yeah so i think if you if you take for example the copper price customers have have not been willing to pay a price that enables companies to invest sufficiently in in paying their employees to a sufficient level to um to to investing enough into the safety and security of their mining operations to the extent that they would like to filling government coffers to enable them to have options to redistribute within society and i think we need to reach a, a copper price that incentivizes some of those investments so that we don't get the the disruptions from strike action and we don't get the risks of you know catastrophic failures within mining operations and we don't get a conflict with government that again leads to um potential you know conflict and confrontation yeah okay thanks that makes sense yeah certainly an argument for for higher prices leading to better esg standards within companies so exactly yeah that's interesting um looking forward now we are in the later phases of the rate cycle albeit rates might stay higher for longer and there is probably is the prospect of some rate cuts ahead at some point yeah how does that change the outlook for income do you think as rates fall again investors desire for income is likely to increase again so you'll you'll see demand for the product yeah nick going back to one of the earlier points we talked about i think the i think an important driver here is that the the tools in the policy toolbox have have changed somewhat we may get minor adjustments to the level of interest rates but i think the the driver of the key driver of policy if we approach a downturn and as we steer through future upturns is that there's going to be more government and um i think if you look across the economy there are so many areas where governments are identifying the need to invest to make our economies fit for purpose and there are so many reasons they're finding to invest for the for the betterment of society overall so whether that means nearshoring investment for which i think there are a lot of emerging market countries that that stand to benefit or onshoring investment um the need for more um energy security water security the the, the list is um growing by the day and it's 
those policy initiatives that I think are going to drive this pricing and volume effect and keep interest rates and inflation overall at higher than historic levels. So those are the those are the reasons I think that what we've seen in the recent past um, is going to continue for actually for many years to come. Great. Well, thanks very much for that, Matt. That feels like a, a good place to draw the podcast to a close. So thanks a lot, Matt, for being the guest on this one. It's much appreciated. Great. Thanks for having me, Nick. Great. And thanks to everyone who took the time today to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.